Welcome to Compliance Beat, the podcast for compliance and ethics professionals. We provide practical insights and answer your questions about compliance and ethics. Together, we'll stay up to date on current trends so that your program stays effective. Brought to you by Moorhead Compliance Consulting. Here's your host, Eric Moorhead. Hey there, this time we're going to talk a little bit about what is required regarding a code of conduct. This uh, dovetails with a webinar that I am doing live tomorrow, January the 17th, 2019, with Clear Law Institute, uh, updating your code of conduct best practices. It'll be at 3 p.m. Eastern time. It is approved for CLE credit. If you can't join us tomorrow, the 17th at 3 p.m. These webinars are recorded and you can listen to it at your leisure. Um, The uh, registration information for this webinar will be in the show notes today, but you can also go to Clear Law Institute, search for Clear Law Institute, or go to clearlaws.com and do a search of my name, Eric Moorhead, uh, updating your code of conduct, and you will find uh, a couple different versions of this webinar that I've done over the last, I guess, 18 months, two years that I've uh, been doing webinars with Clear Law about every six months or so. Uh, But uh, please join us tomorrow. It's your last chance. And if you get a hold of me uh, before 3 p.m. Eastern on the 17th, uh, I can give you a discount code uh, that will allow you to get 35% off the uh, fee to listen to the webinar, view the webinar, I guess, because you're both listening and viewing. Um, uh, That... uh, the way to get that would be to email me directly probably is the easiest at eric at moreheadconsulting.com. Uh, as always, if you have questions, uh, comments, uh, ideas for future podcasts, please do also feel free to get a hold of me at eric at moreheadconsulting.com or contact us through the compliancebeat.com website or the moreheadconsulting.com website. So that's a lot of uh, preliminary there, but uh, uh, actually the Code of Conduct has been on my mind the last few days. I've had several discussions with uh, different people about their current Code of Conduct, and uh, twice in the last couple of days uh, the comment came up, and this was primarily, uh, you know, as you all know, I'm not not bashful about uh, bashing my fellow uh, lawyers and their perspective on compliance here and there. Um, and there were um, perhaps one or two lawyers uh, in this group of, of uh, a couple different groups of people I was talking to in the last few days about code of conduct who said, okay, brass tacks, really, what are the requirements for a code of conduct? Well, the easy answer to that is there are no require there are no legal requirements. Uh, there are contractual requirements if you are a listed organization on the New York Stock Exchange or NASDAQ, and I believe some other exchanges, but those are the two that I'm familiar with, then you have to have a code of conduct because that code of conduct has to be posted on your website if you're going to be a listed organization. So you need it for that purpose. Uh, If you are a government contractor here in the United States, the uh, Federal Acquisition Regulation, the FAR, require a written code of conduct. So there are some contractual or uh, other obligations that would require you to have a code. Uh, But other than that, there's nothing out there that says you have to have a code of conduct. And we talked about before the fact that you do not have to have something called a code of conduct. You just have to have a document that 
meets the requirements or the the uh, uh, you know, has the uh, establishing marks of a code of conduct uh, for those purposes. But, but if you're an uh, unregulated uh, organization uh, that doesn't isn't subject to the uh, FARs, uh, and you're not a your private company and you're not listed, uh, if you were, for example, uh, Morehead Compliance Consulting, which is a small organization uh, and is privately held. Uh, I am not necessarily required to have a code of conduct. I actually do, which is probably not a surprise since I talk about code of conduct all the time. It's pretty short and to the point and makes sense for my organization. It's, uh, as the sentencing guidelines suggest, fit for purpose and uh, and addresses the risks and issues that I have as an organization. But but uh, I, I'm not necessarily required to have it. There is no requirement. The easy answer is, is nobody is going to require you to do it. However, as we've discussed before on multiple occasions, the expectation is that you will have a code of conduct. And beyond that, the expectations these days from the stakeholders that are out there, including regulators, is that your code is going to have certain aspects, certain features, certain elements to it, uh, and that it should be prepared and, and, and uh, the methodology and the process around your code of conduct should be clear. So I'm going to give you a little bit of a preview and what I talk about in the webinar uh, tomorrow and in the webinars <coughs> uh, or, or other uh, speaking engagements where I talk about this. Uh, a lot of this is predicated on a guidance that's come from the Department of Justice and uh, SEC and other sources over the years. Uh, but I focus a lot here in the last uh, year and a half, two years, on the February 2017 uh, memoranda that came out of the fraud section of the Department of Justice because it really distills a lot of the same points in a much more concise and, I think, understandable way. So if you want to know what the quote-unquote requirements are, well, we know there aren't necessarily re hard and fast requirements. There's not a law. Uh, for example, that states that if you are incorporated or operating or doing business in a certain state or in the United States that you or anywhere else that I'm aware of that you must have a code of conduct. But for all intents and purposes, there are some basic standards, some requirements that the stakeholders are going to expect that you have in place. Now, who are the stakeholders? Let's, let's start there. <clears throat> We've already talked about the regulators. So we have... Uh, our friends at the Department of Justice. We have friends globally. Um, if you are doing business in, for instance, in the UK, uh, there's some discussion about written standards in the guidance from the Ministry of Justice around anti-corruption, for example. Uh, the OECD uh, guidance on anti-corruption talks about written standards, talks about having these in place. So it's not just the United States. Um, but there are other stakeholders that are out there. Obviously, your employees. Um, that's an audience that most people think of when they think of a code of conduct. But you also have your partners, uh, third parties that are out there in the world. Those people are also stakeholders that have some interest in your code of conduct. Your customers and clients. And if you happen to be a publicly traded company, uh, institutional shareholders care more and more, for example, 
about whether you have a code of conduct and what kind of shape it's in and what the elements are of that code of conduct. So those expectations exist even if there isn't a specific reg or rule outside of the rules of the uh, stock exchanges we talked about already that in the FAR that uh, says that you have to have it and it has to have certain uh, elements, but the expectations remain. And that's the thing to focus on. So if we're talking about expectations, the sort of baseline for that are the expectations that we have seen in the guidance from the regulators, including this most recent guidance from February uh, of uh, 2017 from the Department of Justice. Uh, what you know? So what is that guidance? What are some basic principles that are in this uh, guidance for a uh, code of conduct? Well, first of all, as is often the case with uh, discussions about uh, code of conduct, code of conduct itself is not named as code of conduct. We do, we're talking about written standards, or in the case of the memo from 2017, policies and procedures. Uh, the sentencing guidelines talk about written standards. Uh, very often, the guidance does not specifically call out codes of conduct. Uh, f really, in, 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 no law, in no small part, because we're not only talking about code of conduct, but also because, as I mentioned at the top, not everybody has uh, a document that's called a code of conduct that s serves that purpose. I was just talking to someone today, this morning, and the document uh, that was called a code of conduct was actually something completely different. And the document that we would, uh, for those of us that are familiar with codes of conduct, would normally call the code of conduct was the employee, employee handbook. And that often happens. You have an employee handbook. You have a business standard guide. You have you know a zillion potential names out there for this document. Whatever it is. We know, we know more about what it is, not by what we call it, but by what it contains, what the elements of this document might be. So what are some of the things that uh, these regulators, uh, in, in this case the Department of Justice, are going to look to when they are um, uh, evaluating uh, you, the effectiveness of your program through these policies and procedures or this code of conduct? Well, first, they look at how you created it, how you designed it. They want to look at the design process. So they want to know how you came to have this code. And they ask some very specific questions like, what has the company's process been for designing and implementing new policies and procedures? So in other words, do you have a methodology? Or do you work with a partner, uh, an outside firm or organization that has a methodology, that has experience? and knows what goes into building one of these documents. And you also need to make sure that you can show that process or methodology. So document it in some way. And then the second question, which is equally important to what your methodology is, who has been involved in the design of the policy and procedure? So this is begging the question of uh, who in the organization, who understands the risks, who understands what you're facing as an organization, and how have they been involved. To me, this means not just the lawyer, not just uh, the head of HR or whomever happens to be responsible for the day-to-day -day for compliance, but a much broader group of operational management and expertise throughout the organization 
that uh, can give you a broader picture. So they're asking, what is the process and who is involved? And if that wasn't specific enough for you about operational involvement, here's the third question they ask. Have business units or divisions been consulted prior to rolling out the policies or procedures? So have you actually gone out and field tested your uh, code methodology or the code content that you plan on developing? So if it wasn't already clear from the second question about who was involved, they are going to ask you specifically about operational involvement and whether they've been quote unquote consulted. Well, what does that mean? I think that it means at the very least that you've asked some questions, that you've shared uh, what the content is going to be and how it's going to be presented and what the expectations are going to be on the back end uh, for people to respond to that content. If it's you know as, as simple as them reading it and certifying to it or whether training is going to be based off of it, whether there's going to be an ongoing communication effort based off on it, um, that's all. I think those are all questions that you need to consider and possibly, quote unquote, consult with that group about. This is all in this memo from February 2017 from the Department of Justice, by the way. Uh, these questions are very specific. Beyond design, uh, the second major area that they inquire about in this uh, memoranda is, quote unquote, applicability of these written standards, of this code of conduct. And the first query there is, has the company had policies and procedures that prohibited misconduct? Well, that's a big question. It, does your code of conduct prohibit misconduct? Or pro, has it prohibited misconduct, rather? So you need to be able to measure. You need to have been doing some sort of internal measurement, some sort of benchmarking, some sort of measurement about perceptions about the code. Like, for instance, do your people know the code exists? Have they looked at the code? Have they actually read the code? Can they uh, answer questions about the content of the code accurately? You need to be able to show that the code of conduct and other applicable policies have some impact. You have to have some measurement that they're applicable in that regard. That's how you show applicability. That's how you show effectiveness is by testing. And then the, another query is, how has the company assessed whether these procedures have been effectively implemented? Kind of similar to that first question, but not directed at misconduct, but just about whether these policies are out there and accessible. Have they reached the audience that you need to reach? Uh, so that's more a measurement uh, on, on uh, accessibility uh, rather than whether they've actually been effective in communicating the message and perhaps prohib uh, prohibiting misconduct. Um, so you're looking at effectiveness. You're looking at what we've been talking about for years coming out of the sentencing guidelines, the uh, effectiveness of the program. And you need to measure that or at least attempt to measure that and 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 somehow uh, uh, put some some uh, substance behind your per your perception about how these how the code of conduct has been uh, accepted and used uh, based on the perceptions of those out in the field who are the stakeholders that it's been directed towards um, and the uh, 
last question under the, the applicability that I wanted to talk about today is how have the functions that have ownership of these policies, so um, that would be legal, that would be compliance, that would be HR, that would perhaps be uh, management as a whole if you have the sort of uh, flat, uh, uh, div dispersed uh, compliance program that many organizations are working towards, and how have they been held accountable for any oversight. So again, you need to have some sort, I believe, uh, some sort of plan, some sort of methodology around the code of conduct and any other written policies that includes this broader group uh, in a, you know, in a multi-year plan, in a methodology that talks about not only uh, developing the code, putting the code out, but evaluating the code as we talked about a couple minutes ago, and perhaps uh, revisiting the code, editing it, um, revising it on a regular basis, and have that standing group together. Um, so some of this is a little esoteric, I think, but but I think it's worthwhile to take a look at this memo, and it really I think brings to brings home to organizations that haven't paid much attention to the code and really cabined the code of conduct off as uh, a legal requirement or a legal and or a legal responsibility that only exists as a mitigation tool uh, developed by the legal team and put up on the website if necessary, but not really something that is a living, breathing thing. Uh, that uh, involves a broader group of operational management, uh, this should be a wake-up call that that's not what the expectations are. And again, we don't have requirements, but we have some pretty strong expectations. So what's the bottom line here? There's no requirement that you have a code of conduct. None. Unless you have some sort of contractual or uh, uh, some sort of obligation based on being a publicly traded company on an exchange or a... Uh, uh, federal government contractor but there are expectations for everyone the best practices remain fundamentally the same the things that we talk about all the time on this podcast the things I'm going to talk about tomorrow in the webinar uh, and talk about in the future uh, what makes a good code of conduct development and uh, redevelopment process what makes the, a good code of conduct uh, product uh, those best practices remain and they change and they will continue to evolve you need to have some sort of plan that's the other thing that I think you need to get out of this is that uh, simply having a code of conduct that exists somewhere is not sufficient that's not going to meet anybody's standard any stakeholder standard um, and uh, there ought to be some sort of periodic review of the product of the code to take a look at it and make a determination about whether it needs uh, enhancement, uh, some sort of uh, uh, change, um, whether you're reaching the audience the way you should. Maybe you don't necessarily need to change the product itself, the code, but maybe you need to change the way that you're delivering it to your audience, to your stakeholders. These are all things that need to be considered. So I uh, just a little bit of a preview of some of the things I talk about uh, when I do these webinars. I, I know there are other podcasts. If you look back through our now, I think, closing in on like 110, 115 episodes, uh, there are several that touch on different aspects of Code of Conduct, and I'm going to certainly do more in the future. Uh, but it was just interesting to me that, it, it, you know, in 2019, um, where we have a lot of very mature uh, compliance programs, programs out there, 
uh, I'm still getting the well, what's really required question when we talk about code of conduct. And I'm not trying to be flip about it. I mean, I, I think that it's, it's an honest question. Um, but the honest answer is, is those expectations exist. And uh, if you don't meet those expectations, then you're not going to be deemed to have an effective uh, compliance program by a regulator if you find yourself facing uh, potential um, issues with a regulator. And you're not going to be deemed to have an effective compliance program by your stakeholders, by your employees, by uh, institutional investors, by partners. People have expectations now both individually and organizational expectations. And we need to try to meet those. So uh, join us tomorrow, uh, January 17th at 3 p.m. Eastern, uh, Clear Law Institute. Uh, again, I'll put the information in the show notes here. If you happen to miss us, if you're listening to us on Friday, do not worry. You can listen to a recorded version of that uh uh, webinar and still get your CLE credits if you, if uh, or CCB credits rather if you're interested. Um, uh, there are a couple of different versions of uh, code webinars that you can find on Clear Law Institute that I've done in the past, and I've I think I've done a uh, benchmarking uh, webinar with them as well. Um, but uh, check it out. Um, and until next time, thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Compliance Beat. Check out our website, compliancebeat.com. This podcast is brought to you by Moorhead Compliance Consulting. Be sure to check us out at moorheadconsulting.com.